Good morning. Can you take your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13? Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to start, we're only going to cover verses 5 and 6 today. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1009. Let me uh, pray for us before we get started. Father, we are grateful for your help. We have made it through another week by your provision and kindness. You have given us sustaining grace. Uh, We look back on it and we want to give you thanks for everything. Life, breath, and everything. Uh, We thank you that we get to gather here this morning and sit under the teaching of your word and we ask that it would be accurate and faithful to the text and that your Holy Spirit would Help us to obey it and uh, treasure Jesus more because of it. In his name we pray, amen. You deserve more, so get some more, says an ad by one bank. You deserve better, upgrade to more says a cell phone company. This vacation, you deserve a Lincoln, says American Express. Another ad for Porsche. Honestly, do you spend your youth dreaming about someday owning a Nissan? All these ads have something in common. They appeal to discontentment in consumers. Others have observed this as well. Vance Packard once noted that America was growing great by, by the systematic creation of dissatisfaction. Uh, more recently, a law professor named Tamara Piety uh, wrote a, an article titled Merchants of Discontent. And beneath one heading, she observes... Today's satisfaction is placed ahead of delayed gratification. Why save for tomorrow when you can spend today, advertising implicitly tells us. Even better, why wait until you have money to spend? Spend tomorrow's money. And in saying so, she picks on the credit card industry and how they appeal to this discontentment. And if it's not discontentment, then it's fear. In his, in his book, Brave New World Revisited, Aldous Huxley wrote this about much of the advertising he observed. The principles are extremely simple. Find some common desire, some widespread unconscious fear or anxiety. Think out some way to relate this wish or fear to the product you have to sell. And then build a bridge of verbal or pictorial symbols over which your customer can pass from fact 
to compensatory dream and from the dream to the illusion that your product, when purchased, will make the dream come true. Stated differently, without having said product, you will be miserable, unloved, uncomfortable, unsafe, unable to keep up, unable to fix your life, and so you better buy it soon and buy it from us. Now, not all advertising does this, but a lot does. It builds on discontentment and fear. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 address both when it comes to the love of money. In an affluent culture like ours, a word like this one equips us to resist the constant appeals to have more stuff and to have more security and have it now and here. But more importantly, verses 5 and 6 show us how to be free from the love of money and free from discontentment and free from the fear of man. So let's read it together to discover the answer. Verse 5, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now the initial question I want to consider is, what does this command mean? What does this command mean? I mean, he seems to be saying just kind of one thing, but he uses a negative and then a positive to get at it. And the negative comes first. Keep your life free from the love of of money. So this your life, the way you think and behave, let let it let uh, let the way you do everything be free from the love of money. And money in this context isn't limited to to paper bills and and the coins that jingle in your pocket. It's it's more so what those symbols stand for. Buying power, ability to own something, Ability to to change your circumstances to the way you want them to be. That money, or wealth in general, in itself, is not the problem. Ecclesiastes 5 describes wealth and possessions as a gift from God. Uh, 1 Timothy 6.17 includes it among other things God richly provides for our enjoyment. God also entrusts us with wealth to meet the needs of others and making sure they're clothed and fed and blessed or even well supplied for ministry. We might also use wealth to help others enjoy the good gifts that God gives. The problem comes with the love of money. Okay, we we don't find much here of him explaining what, what is the love of money. But Paul elaborates elsewhere on this same idea in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where he says, The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And then the context in 1 Timothy 6 informs what he has in mind by the love of money. So, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 speaks of those who want to get rich. They have a, they have a craving for more. 
And then later in chapter 6, verse 17, it has to do with setting your hopes on what money can do for you. Okay, You depend on it to satisfy you and make you safe. Uh, then in chapter 6, verse 10, he, he also speaks of, of uh, so longing for it that it leads you away from the faith. So according to 1 Timothy 6, the love of money has to do with craving it and so hoping in it and hoping in what it can do for you that you no longer serve God or depend on Him. Keep your life free from that. To quote Jesus, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So instead of ruling money and using money to bless others, stewarding it, stewarding what's entrusted to us to bless others, the love of money has to do with money itself ruling you. Money calling the shots in your life. Money being your driving motive for, for why you do what you do. Money dictating how you treat others and what you devote yourself to and who you try to please and who you don't want to please. What keeps you happy and what makes you mad. And Hebrews is saying we must keep our lives free from that. Free from money mastering us. Instead... You must be content with what you have. Now, that's the positive way he speaks to the same thing, contentment. Our fighter verse from uh, 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 8, a few weeks back, gave similar instructions. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, contentment doesn't mean we can't share our needs with others. Like, let them know we we have a need. uh, Or that we pretend that real needs don't exist. It also doesn't mean you can't wish for your circumstances to change. I mean, saints throughout the scripture, they state their needs very plainly before the Lord and before others. Uh, They also pray for the Lord to change their circumstances uh, or for the Lord to provide for them in some material way. The question is whether the things you wish to have start to control you, start driving you into evil attitudes toward God and towards others. Or perhaps they take your sights off the kingdom where they should be. So contentment is, is more of a state of mind that's not frantic but peaceful Whatever you need, in whatever the circumstances, you're resting in the fact that God's grace is going to be sufficient and it's going to supply what you need. So for those with less, contentment means that you're not just tolerating life while murmuring about everything you don't have. Rather, you're at ease with the resources God has already provided for you. For those with more, contentment looks like living beneath your means, right? Not feeling like your higher earnings must necessitate higher living. You're okay with living on less 
in order that you can give more. So we put off the love of money, we put on contentment. But why is this command given? That's the next question I want to answer. Why is this command given? Why does this command appear here in Hebrews? A letter written about persevering in in the faith. Uh, why, Why does he say this to these Christians in particular? What does their attitude about money have to do with their perseverance? Well, let me use the letter of Hebrews and where we've been so far to kind of sketch for you a few situations of why money like this become, uh, why instructions about money like this become so important. To begin, consider the way that faithfulness to God means you may suffer the loss of your stuff. Faithfulness means you may suffer the loss of your stuff. Remember Moses back in chapter 11, verses, uh, tw- verse 26, it says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So here's a guy, he's raised uh, in Pharaoh's court. Uh, He could have been, uh, he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He he could have been an heir. All the treasures of Egypt were at this man's fingertips. And yet faithfulness meant he chose the reproaches of Christ over those earthly riches. His desire for the heavenly riches meant forfeiting earthly riches when the obedience to God demanded that. Or consider also the ones that he mentions in chapter 11, verses uh, 37 and 38. He says that some of them went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Faithfulness to the Lord meant that they became outcasts. It's not like anybody's hiring these guys. Their families disowned them and kicked them out of their homes. And now they're wandering about in in deserts with nothing. No place to lay their head. Uh, Even these Christians that he's writing to lost their stuff. If you look back at chapter 10, uh, verse 34. At some point in their past, these Christians come face to face with persecution Uh, They had compassion on some of their brothers and sisters who were put in prison. And it says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. So faithfulness to God may very well put you in a financially hard position. Everything may be stripped from you one day and you'll need in those moments not to love money. If you're given over to the love of money now, you won't be able to accept the plundering of your property when that happens. You you will hate it. You will feel like your entire world is crumbling. You will fight your enemies to keep it instead of laying your life down for them. Or when they threaten to take it all away, instead of obeying Jesus, you'll begin compromising on the truth, making some deals, bargaining a little bit with your persecutors. The call will come from Jesus to take up your cross, but you will walk away sorrowful like the rich young man who chose not to follow Jesus because his possessions were so great. He couldn't sell his possessions and give to the poor and lay up treasure in heaven. He was too attached to his stuff. 
And Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's a real good reason. That's one real good reason to equip these Christians not to give themselves over to the love of money. In fact, it's very clear when he's writing that more persecution is likely coming very soon for them. So he's preparing them. Uh, something else about their situation was this. Faithfulness to God means you will, lose, you, you will use your stuff to serve others. You will use your stuff to serve others. It's not an accident that he tells them here to be content with what they have. And if you flip over to verse 16 in the same chapter, he instructs them to share what they have with those in need. So godly contentment will lead to generosity. Also, I want you to see a play on words here. Uh, So, verse 1 spoke about brotherly love. So in Greek, that's Philadelphia. Just listen for Phil in the rest of these words. But brotherly love, Philadelphia. Verse 2 spoke about showing hospitality. That's Philoxenia, love for the stranger. And now he uses a word that we translate as free from the love of money. That's all one word. Free from the love of money. And that is aphilarguros. In other words, he's kind of doing a play on words here to say that love of money will hinder you from showing brotherly love and serving the stranger. When they encounter needs, you you won't open your hand to them if you love money. Even though you have the world's goods, you will close your heart against those in need. And you will say to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things that they need for the body. And as James tells us, what good is that? So that's another good reason to help some Christians be free from the love of money. It will liberate them to give generously to others. It will liberate them to share their stuff with those in need. And you can imagine there's got to be a lot of sharing going on when the persecution comes. So it's all connected here. And then one more observation from from Hebrews. Uh, Faithfulness to God means that our hope is set in a better country. That's been a ongoing theme throughout this, this, this letter. The church was able to joyfully accept the plundering of their property. In chapter 10, verse 34, it says, because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. Later in chapter 11, Abraham and his children, they packed light. Why? They recognized that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This wasn't their home. They desired a better country. They looked forward to the city with foundations whose designer and builder was God. They laid up for themselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. If you love money, all of your focus is going to be here, now, in this life, and all that you can accumulate. All your hopes will be limited to these temporary, man-made, fleeting kingdoms. You you will be like the rich fool in Luke's Gospel. 
He thought his life consisted in the abundance of his possessions. He accumulated so much wealth that he tore down his smaller barns and then he went over and built bigger barns to put more stuff in. And then he sat back and he said to himself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. Buy yourself a Lincoln. Don't settle for the Nissan. Get another one thrown in, right? It says, but God said to him, you fool. That's a terrifying, those are the most terrifying words coming from the Lord Almighty. You fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose are they going to be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So that's another great reason to help these Christians be free from the love of money. The love of money will shrivel your soul such that it it becomes too easily pleased with this present age. John tells us that all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions, guess what's happening to it? He says it's all passing away. Only the one who does the will of God abides forever. So when enslaved to the love of money, you will not live for God, you will not be generous to others, and you will sell your soul for a kingdom that's passing away. And so he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, how does that happen? How do we avoid these dangers? What is going to fuel our obedience to this command? What's going to produce contentment so that we're freed from the love of money? And the answer comes at the end of verse 15. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's so good. Let's read it again. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the answer. Now, a couple different ways we could approach this, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. The closest parallel to these words come in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, and Joshua 1, verse 5. Both times God has spoken this word to Joshua. Yeshua, right? The Lord saves. God speaks these words to Joshua before he enters the promised land. Okay, Joshua must be strong and courageous. Why? Well, God's never going to leave him nor forsake him. But Joshua, he also represented the people, right? He's leading the people into the promised land. Joshua represented the people. So for God to be with Joshua meant that he was also with the people. He was leading into the promised land. Well, in the same way, God is with Jesus, the true Yeshua, the true Lord, our Savior. 
And Jesus is leading us into a greater promised land, the better country, the new Jerusalem. God will never leave Jesus. He is His Son. God will never leave Jesus nor forsake Him. And we know that by virtue of Jesus' resurrection. But that also means that if you belong to Jesus, right? if Jesus is your representative, if He's your leader, if He's, if he's leading you to glory, then God is also with you. God is committed to you. No matter what you encounter in your journey to the true promised land, God will never leave you nor forsake you. That's how this promise is yes and amen in Christ for us. Okay, that's one way to approach this. Here's the other way. The other way is to look at this more thematically, these words more thematically. And I say this because neither Deuteronomy 31.6 nor Joshua 1.5, which I mentioned a minute ago, neither of them have the exact same wording. In fact, you can't find the exact same wording here in the Old Testament. But we do find parts of this phrase all over the place in the Old Testament. It's repeated in Genesis 28.15 to Jacob. Uh, then again to Joshua and Deuteronomy and Joshua 1.5. And then again in First uh, uh, Chronicles 28.20 to Solomon. And then we also find a complementary promise, I will be with you, repeated numerous times throughout the history of God's people to Isaac and then to Jacob and to Moses, to Gideon, to Israel, all the way to the church. In Jesus' words, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, when he says, for God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, he's revealing that this is what God has been like throughout the ages for his people. Proof after proof after proof in the scriptures are showing that God will never forsake his people, and that becomes decisively shown in Emmanuel, God with us, right? So, what should that lead us to say? Well, look look, look at the connection in verse 6. God said that, so that, verse verse 6 says, we can confidently say something. So, God said something to us in Christ, so that we can say something. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me? That's a quotation from Psalm 118, verse 6. And some of you remember that we covered this psalm very closely last year for Thanksgiving. But it's a, it's a psalm that's first and foremost about the Messiah, about Jesus. And that's important to see. So if you go back to Psalm 118, and you read these words... In verse 6, you're going to see it's the king saying these words. It's the righteous servant saying these words. The righteous king is saying, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can man do to me. And, and, and when, you, when you see this, this guy, I mean, he is the one that, that has got this unwavering faithfulness to Yahweh. 
He is the one leading God's people into worship, and He is the one representing the people in battle. He is the one committed to the Lord's will in the face of His enemies. He is the hero of Psalm 118. The Lord is His helper. So how is it then that Hebrews says, we can say these words? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? How can we take the king's words and put them on our own lips with confidence? Well, because God worked through that same king to unite us to himself and lead us into, his, into God's presence. And that's what the rest of Psalm 118 is about. Jesus himself actually uses that psalm. You might, you're going to become immediately familiar with it when I say these words. But, but Jesus uses this psalm to help people understand his saving work. Remember he says that, uh, uh, he, he tells the, the Pharisees that about the stone that the builder rejected. The builders rejected this stone and that stone became the chief cornerstone. That comes from Psalm 118. In other words, he, he experienced, this king, while he's faithfully obeying Yahweh, he experiences adversity and rejection, which is compared here to the builders tossing aside what they viewed as an insignificant stone. Contrary to expectations, though, the Lord actually uses his rejection to establish his work, to build his kingdom. So he's talking about going through the cross for us. Right? They tossed him aside. God cut him off. But he wasn't cut off for any sins that he committed. He was cut off for the sins that we committed. And then God proved to be his helper by raising him from the dead. So here's the beauty of the gospel from Psalm 118. You are not the hero of Psalm 118. But when you're united to the hero, God so becomes your helper that His words can become yours. (laughs) That's pretty amazing, right? When Jesus is your king, when He's your representative before God, Psalm 118 verse 6 is yours. That's the only way it's yours. In union with Christ, God is our helper, and He brings us into God's presence. That's what we've been reading about in Hebrews, like in chapter 2, when he says, He Himself has suffered when tempted, so that He can help those who are being tempted. Help! Same word. Or chapter 4, verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, with God, I mean, in union with Christ, God is our helper and He brings us into God's presence. And with God, being in God's presence, we have everything we truly need. He stands by us, not because we're so great, but because Jesus is great and God stands by Him. Therefore, we don't need to fear man, nor do we need to fear what man can take away from us. 
You can imagine how how that could be a source of encouragement to a church that's about to go through some more persecution. More property is going to be plundered. As I mentioned before, it's common for Christians to encounter poverty poverty for the gospel, to lose jobs, to lose the benefits of trade, to, to have their homes raided or buildings burned. It would be tempting to despair and to become discontent and, and to grow really anxious and fearful. But Hebrews takes Psalm 118 and he says that you don't need to fear. In Christ, God is for you. In Christ, God is your helper. What's man going to do? He cannot steal the riches God has kept for you in the kingdom. At worst, man can kill you, but he cannot separate you from God. God's promised presence, God's promised help. These are the, these are the truths uh, about God which liberate us from the love of money. These truths help us become content with what we have. These truths help deliver us from the fear of man. If we have God, we have everything we need and more. If we have God, no matter how much, our, uh, much of our property gets plundered, no matter what needs we may encounter, He will be our helper. So you can't ask for a greater gift here. You, you cannot ask for a greater gift than God. It doesn't exist. You can't ask for a richer inheritance than the kingdom. You can't ask for a greater possession. You can't ask for a greater helper in times of need than God Himself. And this passage tells us that He's, and all of Hebrews has told us that He is ours in Christ. So what are a few practical takeaways then? Well, one is this. Stay alert to the dangers of the love of money and discontentment. Stay alert to them. I mentioned three earlier from Hebrews. The love of money will keep you from following Jesus when persecution costs you everything. The love of money will also make you tight-fisted instead of generous. It will also lead you away from God. But the Bible includes other dangers as well in reference to money. A lack of contentment, for example, can also lead to extortion... And an abuse of power. Remember Jesus when he addresses the soldiers? after What does it look like to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? And Jesus tells them, hey, stop beating people up for more money. And and stop abusing your power. Be content with with your wages, he tells them. 1 Peter 5.3 associates it with church leaders using others for selfish gain. Ecclesiastes 5.10 describes a lover of money as one who's never satisfied. No matter how much he has, he's, it's, it's never enough because he needs more of it. More. The law often brings to our attention uh, bribes in court, right? People doing things under the table to get away with it or, or said that the other guy gets accused and not them. So it leads to injustice. In Revelation 2.7, the love of possession leads to self-sufficiency and a lack of dependence on the Lord. Uh, in Matthew 6, it leads to anxiety and worry. In Acts 16, it leads to uh, businessmen making money 
off of a woman who's enslaved by an evil spirit. And then when she gets delivered by the spirit, they're mad about it. In James 5, it kept wealthy landowners from paying their employees their wages in full and on time. So in sum, the love of money and discontentment will mess you up and mess a whole lot of other people in your life up. The OJs got it right back in the 60s. For the love of money, people will lie. Lord, they will cheat. The younger generation doesn't know know about this. I just know about it because, you know, I had parents that listened to these kinds of things. For the love of money, people don't care who they hurt or beat. I know money is the root of all evil. Do funny things to some people. Right? If you've never heard of it, you ever heard of money, 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 money? You know, you, now Pete, more people are getting it now. For the love of money, you will forfeit your soul. You will dehumanize other people. They will become objects to get what you want or obstacles in the way of what you want. Stay alert to these dangers. Don't let the world's stuff lead your heart astray. Don't let money lead this church astray. Right? Don't put leaders in place who are given over to money. 1 Timothy 3.3 actually uses, it's the only other place this word appears in the New Testament, and it says the elders should be free from the love of money. The leaders of a local church should exemplify contentment and sacrificial giving and generosity. Uh, Another takeaway is this. How you relate to money reveals the state of your heart. See, he's connecting money to a trust thing, isn't he? Showing when you when you have the love of money, you're not trusting in the Lord. So money is a God issue. Among other things listed in chapter 13, money has everything to do with with worship. Remember, this comes right on the heels of Hebrews 12, 28, 28, yeah, talking about us offering to God acceptable worship, and now we're getting some practical things about what that looks like in, in day-to-day life, including with our money. Money often exposes where our true devotion and trust lies. How do you respond when money is short or when an unexpected expense occurs? Does your anxiety shoot through the roof? Uh, Do you start complaining? Do you become more irritable and short towards others? We had some plumbing issues a couple weeks ago in the front yard, and the repair turned out to be way more expensive than I expected. And that was after I did most of the work getting down to the leak, digging a big hole. I would have told anybody that I believe God is our provider. But you can ask my family, 
my griping and unhappy soul certainly didn't show it. Nor did it help them learn how to trust the Lord to provide. Have you envied others who have more than you? Uh, Maybe you begin taking supplies home from work. You know, a few pens here, notepads there, building materials. And you even find yourself justifying it with attitudes like, well, they should pay me more anyway. Or perhaps the market is doing well. Everything is life is happy until it becomes a bear. And then you become a bear. Or maybe the market does well and you find a surplus or you find a surplus in the budget or or you learn of a bonus coming. Before, before that you were a bitter person to be around, but now your joy skyrockets. Your day you're daydreaming about all the happy things money will buy you, and you are comfortable. If money is determining these emotional responses like this, I mean They have everything to do with what your heart loves. What it's worshipping and what it's devoted to. Take note of these responses and those behaviors. And test yourself and ask yourself questions like, Is my happiness bound to the status of my bank account? Am I finding my joy and comfort in what money can buy me? Is God the source of my security or human resources? In the face of loss, am I trusting Him to provide? In the face of plenty, am I growing less dependent on His help? So stay alert. The way you spend, the way you save, the way you give, the way you don't give to others, the way you rejoice when there's plenty and freak out when there's not enough, it says a whole lot about the way you're viewing God and the way you're trusting Him and serving Him. It's just as, like, this is a further fleshing out of what Jesus says about where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Uh, Another takeaway preach to yourself the promised presence of God. Preach it to yourself. Don't stop with just testing your heart. Preach to your heart these truths. It's the only way that. that, that we're going to change. I mean, notice verse 6 again. So that we can confidently say. He wants us to be saying something. Not just believing something, but saying it. And saying it often to ourselves and to each other. God has said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. So, when the plumbing breaks and you encounter an expense you didn't expect... You can say to yourself and to your family, God will never leave us or forsake us. When your supervisor informs you that revenue is still down and you won't be getting that raise or you won't be getting that bonus, in that moment, remind yourself, God is with me. God is with me. When your medical bills bills shoot through the roof, when, when you're caring for someone you love, and you wake up in the morning with, with the ancient thought, anxious thought, like, I don't know what we're going to do. 
We don't have any money. You get those thoughts. First, first thing out of the bed. It's not, Jesus, I'm so thankful for the day. It's money. We don't have any enough money to pay for the cancer bill this time. Let the Lord's presence quiet your worried soul in those moments. Bring those concerns to the Lord. Maybe you have a spouse that's not providing for you very well. Or maybe they're leaving you for foolish reasons. And you've, you have been faithful all along, but, but they're still walking away and you're scared. And you don't know what the future looks like. And you don't know if the, if, where the money's going to come from and if it will. And What are you going to do for you and the kids? And this passage says to you in that moment, the Lord is your helper. Maybe the spouse who was helping to provide died from an illness and you don't know how you're going to make it now. Just you and the kids. The Lord is your helper. It's in these moments of distress that our cry should go to Him. It's in these moments that we can bury our head in His chest, so to speak, and cry and ask for help. Maybe you know some people who have significant needs. You've met them and you want to help them and you want to pour into their life and they start talking to, to you about the needs that they have and they so overwhelm you, you don't know where to start or where to begin and, and you're, I don't even know how to help this guy. It's in the midst of your anxieties about that and the, and the fears. You need to preach to yourself the promised presence of God and that He will be your helper. We have to remember who He is. If you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? You know what that, that teaching comes... You know what it comes before in, in uh, Matthew chapter 7? You ever notice this connection? Matthew 7, verse 10, uh, verse 11 talks about, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. It's built on God's generosity. Like your generosity that goes out to, to loving others is built on God's generosity. And so when you're encountering those, those needs that overwhelm you, go to the Lord as your helper. He gives good gifts to His children. And then finally, when enemies take your stuff or they threaten to do so, don't fear man. Don't fear man. The path of obedience already calls us to radical generosity with wealth. And this, of course, grows out of our confession of the gospel. We know that he who was rich became poor on our behalf in order that we, by his poverty, might become rich. But we also face times of persecution in which enemies of Christ will plunder our property. They will take it away. They won't employ us. They will demand that we pay a tax to stay out of jail They won't allow us to buy and sell. 
And a passage like this one reminds us that we don't have to fear man. We don't have to fear our persecutors. The Lord is our helper. He is on our side. That doesn't mean we won't suffer. That doesn't mean that God's help will always come through in the form of escape or, or, uh, or material comforts. But it does mean that whatever we need to obey the Lord in those circumstances, His grace is going to provide it. Whatever good things we have to give up in the name of Jesus, we can rest assured that the Lord holds out something better for us and He's got, He pays huge dividends in the kingdom. What does Jesus tell His disciples in Mark 8, verse 29? There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Was there about a hundred of you in here? 120? If you look around, there are your mothers. Right now, in this life, there are your mothers and your brothers and your houses and your lands. Yeah, I just gave all your houses away to each other. That's the way it goes in the family of God. He says it comes with persecutions and then in the age to come, eternal life. And so when you look at that, what can man do to you? What can man really take away when God has promised you a hundredfold more in this life and eternal life in the next? So, brothers and sisters, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Let's pray together.